Thank you, praise team. Uh, that was very worshipful. I really appreciate what you guys do and how you enhance worship. And hopefully we all joined in and engaged with that. You know, we're part of, of a uh, fall realignment series called Refocus. And today's topic has been on worship. And so that's what the Refocus on Worship is all about. We had our Bible study lesson that, uh, that dealt with that topic. And we have other lessons that are going to carry us through uh, all the way toward Thanksgiving. If we're going to refocus on worship, we probably should consider what we mean by worship, maybe explaining what it is and maybe what it's not. Um, when you hear the word worship, really what comes to your mind? I think if most of us are honest, we think about worship is what happens in this room on a particular day of the week. We call it a worship service, and so sometimes that's what our mind will jump toward. It happens at 9.30 and 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, basically an event that takes place in this room each week. Or maybe you think about hymns, or you think about choir when you think of worship. Maybe you think about a praise team, or hearing a preacher with a lesson, or maybe offering up prayers. This is all a part of the worship experience. But worship is not something just what you find in a church. You know, I think we've all heard the phrase hero worship. You know, maybe it's your favorite actor, your favorite athlete, and we kind of use that term for that person. You know, your, your, your hero. And, and, and so maybe, maybe you're a Swifty and uh, you are some other fan of a popular musician or artist. Uh, people can come become blinded uh, by their loyalty to their chosen hero. Uh, it becomes hero worship when we're all in with that person with a blind eye to their limitations or their faults. And, uh, and that's where it becomes hero worship. The passage that you see on the screen right now is is the essence of what I really want us to look at. And uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you realize that John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the, the woman at the well in Samaria. And he gives this statement. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so we're going to try to unpack that a little bit to get a better understanding of what worship is. Now, um, I promised that there would be another acrostic. You kind of knew that was coming. And so it's going to be truth. All right? Truth is the acrostic of the day, of the morning. And the first T is theology of worship. It's good to try to understand our theology of worship as we're going to talk about worship altogether. So human beings are really created to worship. Throughout the millennia, people have worshipped something. You can think of every culture on the planet. There has been worship. And it's not always been the true and living God that revealed himself to Abraham and uh, the, the, the patriarchs. Uh, sometimes people will worship things as inanimate objects like rocks and trees, the sun, the stars, a horoscope. Sometimes we see there's modern day worship in the newspaper. 
every day when they take, that, to take a look at the horoscope. People can even worship their possessions or popularity or pleasures or maybe their position in life. It becomes so important to them. Everything is all-consuming with their heart and with their mind. It becomes an act of worship, although we don't call it that. These things can consume us. Now, the Old Testament regularly calls God's people to, uh, to worship Him. As an example, I'm going to look at several passages of Scripture. The first one is Psalm 29, first two verses. It says, "...to ascribe to the Lord, you angels, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength." Give honor to the Lord and the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. We are called to worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this. <clears throat> Paul is reminding them, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is an act of worship, to do things for the glory of God. And he's saying, whatever you do. So it's not just in this meeting facility. Philippians chapter 2, if we look at uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, it talks about at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Bowing in worship. Bowing in worship. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And why? Why? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. So, the purpose of the church beyond serving and sharing the gospel, serving the Lord and sharing the gospel, is to worship God through Jesus Christ. And here is a picture we get in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It says that we're basically, we are as living stones, we're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. That's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. And then when we get to John chapter 4, we realize that Jesus makes it clear that physical location for our worship is no longer relevant. We can worship Jesus outside of a sanctuary that is set apart for that purpose. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And then it says, God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So true worship takes place on the inside of the person, within our hearts and within our spirit. That's where worship takes place. We are the dwelling place of the true and living God. So He takes up residence inside of us. So why do we worship Him? We have to ask that question. For some of us, it's just habit. Uh, This is Sunday morning. We sort of show up at worship. It's a habit. But why do we worship Him? If you go to Psalm 103, the first couple of verses... This is what the writer of that psalm says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And this is the reason you should bless the Lord. And forget none of His benefits. I mean, we just heard a testimony. How many of us can testify to the benefits of being in Christ? 
of the benefits of knowing the Lord. So, forget none of His benefits. He pardons all of our iniquities. Man, there's some rejoicing in that. He pardons all of our iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. (laughs) Psalm 103. And crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Boy, those are compelling reasons to want to worship the Lord. To give glory to His name. And then let's go back to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. We read this in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Paul mentions that we're this whole building being fitted together is grown into a holy temple of the Lord. So all of us become this building, this temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together. Why? Into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are being built And so not just the individual, but as the corporate body gathers together, He is present in that building. Just like a brick by itself sitting over there is nice, but isn't a brick a really cool thing when you get the master to put, you know, master bricklayer to put those together and creates a building? That's amazing. And so the brick is much greater when bricks get together and and they become a building. Very cool. Now, Believers are temples of the living God, shining His glory. That's what we're called to do. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Jonah, uh, I, I love the prophet Jonah. He is, uh, he's an example of what not to do, but he is a lesson that we can learn from. I call him the reluctant prophet um, for no other reason than if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. But he says this at the very beginning when he shows up in Nineveh. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. And this is the covenant God, the Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. When you read it in the scripture, that's God's covenant name. So we have Jonah, this prophet, who is a part of the covenant of God. And he says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Now, I don't think he was telling the Ninevites anything that they didn't already know about the Jewish people. But what he was saying was this. He was speaking of a lifestyle that was wholly dedicated to bringing glory to God. And since we know the story of Jonah, we wonder, well, he failed at times in that story. But that's what he was speaking of, that it's a lifestyle. It's not just going to the temple and worshiping. He was showing up, letting them know that he serves and worships this God with his lifestyle. And then we get to the Apostle Paul. He defines worship as an all-encompassing lifestyle as well. Go to a familiar passage, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We've all heard this passage before. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? Because of this last phrase. This is your true and proper worship. It's not showing up at the temple to sing songs. It was to be a living and holy sacrifice. That was our spiritual act of service in a proper worship. And so Paul is telling us that it is a lifestyle of worship that he's calling us to do, to to be a part of. And so believers 
participate in various acts of worship. We certainly understand that. Uh, whenever they celebrate God's worthiness, uh, they celebrate His greatness by giving honor and glory to His name. That is what we do when we get together. Worship can be expressed in words, in shouts, singing, bowing down, raising hands, and many other ways. Now, this is what Psalm 95 says, the first two verses. He says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving, and let us sing Him songs of praise. These are elements of worship that we can do. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to do it here. We can do this when we're reading the Scripture before our morning coffee. We can do this while we're reading Scripture and engaging in prayer. We can do these things as well. And so we're talking about a theology of worship. Now, when you think about theology, the word theology is just talk about theos, which is God. And so these are words about God. But here is a very certain foundation. God is the object of our worship. We can't have anything else as the object of our worship. It's not a place like a sanctuary that, that allows us to worship. Uh, it's, it's, it's not about attire like wearing your Sunday best or wearing a tie like God's not going to show up if those things don't happen. It's not about the equipment that we use in worship like a hymn book, or a choir, or a pulpit. These, these are the tools that we have ascribed worth to. But we're supposed to worship, ascribe worth to the God as the foundation, to our God. So worship means acknowledging His absolute worth that only He deserves. He's our Creator. He's our Redeemer. He's the Lord of all. So a biblical theology of worship involves praising God and giving Him glory with our lips and with our lives, with our words and with our works. These are the things that we do with our physical bodies and our spiritual hearts is how we worship. And so worship that pleases God is authentic God-focused worship that's offered with clean hands and a pure heart, as it says in Psalm 24 and Isaiah 66. And so this was all about a theology of worship. I mean, I buzzed through it quickly. And so since I only have a few minutes left, I've got to buzz through these other four, right? Otherwise, uh, I don't want to leave you hanging. All right, uh, the R in the acrostic uh, stands for righteous behavior. And this is where I, I mentioned Psalm 15, um, a couple of weeks back that I was going to be preaching. So not specifically out of that passage of Scripture, but I do want to bring it up here because it is relevant to how we worship. What we say or believe must be backed up with what we do and how we behave because that's what the Christian life is all about. We have to back up our talk with our walk. That is a, a way to put that. And so Psalm 15, along with Psalm 24, has been inspired, I guess, maybe at the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant that was taken. It's coming back to Jerusalem, and so maybe David is, is, is using that occasion to, to talk about you know, who can walk up this hill and be a part of this experience. 
And he gives some criteria. So if you've got Psalm 15 open, I'm going to wander right through verse by verse. There's only five verses. But um, if you think about Psalm 15, back up one psalm, because this is the psalm that says, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so when you've got Psalm 14, this is the person that is the focus in that one, has forsaken God's law and has forsaken the Lord altogether. He thinks that God is irrelevant. He's just, he just says that there is no God. But the person in Psalm 15 is a remnant of those who are faithful to God and have kept faith alive in the nation of Israel. Those are the people that he's talking about. So let me, let me look at just the first verse. I'll start with that. The first verse, is, it, it talks about David's worship. And there are two things that he says. David basically is a pilgrim worshiper because it says, Who may abide in your tent or tabernacle? When you get that phrase, it's very reminiscent of the children of Israel that are going through the desert, and they had this thing called the tabernacle. It came with them. It was that tent of meeting back in the time of the Exodus. The tent of meeting. And so it's a real reminder that that was the place where God would show up and the sacrifices were made. It was the place that was a focus of worship. But it's also a real reminder that our worship can be on the move, really, wherever we are. How many times have you gone to some other city and you found a church to worship in and it's almost like, hey, I belong here? These were a bunch of strangers, but all these people are worshiping the same God that we worship. And so when you go overseas and you find a Christian church, it's amazing that you have so much in common, even though you don't even speak the same language. Because you have this thing together. And so we're reminded that we are pilgrim worshipers. But also, we have a reminder that David was a, was a permanent worker because he says, who may dwell on your holy hill? That was very specific location. The tabernacle was transient. So these transient workers, these transient worshipers, um, transient Israelites, they found their capital city, the city of David, and then they worshipped on this holy hill. And it was this mountain called Moriah. And this is the place where Abraham, God showed him where to go, and he was going to sacrifice his son up on the mountain, uh, Isaac. And so that's why this place is so significant. But there's something to be said about the gathering of God's people in a specific location. There's something to be said for that and to do it on a regular basis. So who can dwell on the holy hill? That speaks of a permanent dwelling, a place that you can go. And that is the local body of believers that we can do that. All right, so out of David's worship in verse 1, you get verses 2, 3, and 4, and we get David's walk because it says... He who walks uprightly. Who can do all this? He who walks uprightly and walks with integrity. So something about the way we walk, I call it a holy walk, is something important that we're going to do. This psalm helps us to see the connection between what we believe and what we do and how we behave in public life. They say that integrity is being the same person in private that you, that you are in public. No matter who's watching, when, someone's, when no one is watching, you're that same person. That is what you call integrity. You don't find yourself behaving one way when no one's watching, but you're behaving this way when everybody can see you. 
See, that is not integrity. It's being the same person in both locations. But we have to remember, somebody is always watching. And I'm not just talking about God. You know, you, you do something, and you're, you're playing on, as they say, the lower end of your keyboard. <laughs> you know, you're playing that, and people see that, and they say, well, that guy goes to church. What's up with that? He must not really believe what he says he does because he doesn't behave properly. We want to be the same person when we think no one else is looking as, as well. But then it also, in, in his walk, he mentions various things in those verses. And I'll do this very quickly. He talks about his works. He works righteousness in the beginning of verse 2. We talk, he talks about his words, his works and then his words. He has secret words. He speaks truth in his heart. Secret words. But then there are spoken words. And there's five different things that I see in these couple of verses. These words are going to be restrained. He doesn't backbite or slander with his tongue. He is restrained with his mouth. That is important. He speaks righteously. He does not do evil to his neighbor. That's how we behave. Righteously. Words of responsibility. He does not take up a reproach or cast blame against his friend. And so he takes responsibility rather than casting blame. He's respectful. He, de- he despises a vile, reprobate person, but honors those who fear the Lord. He is respectful for those who are walking uh, in the Lord. And then he, he's reliable. He's reliable because it says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. When the persecution and the screws are put on you, do you change? He says we're going to be that same person even when the pressure's on. We swear to our own hurt and we will not change. And we are therefore reliable. And so and he finally gets to his ways in verse 5. They were fair. He doesn't charge interest on a loan, doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. These are just a couple of examples of fairness back in the Old Testament times. But we can imagine how we might be able to behave and, and stand up for justice and, and uh, just a lot of other things that are fair. Fair in our culture rather than things that are, that are unequitable. And then they were fixed. He who does these things will never be moved or shaken. That, that's, that's fixed. I want to be that guy. You know? So this psalm gives us a picture of a true worshiper and uh, the one who's accepted into the sanctuary of the Lord. All right, the you is unacceptable worship. We can't have a talk about worship and not uh, bring up the topic of unacceptable worship. Because basically everything that we offer up to God and call it worship. Isn't necessarily worship that will be accepted by him. Uh, there's, worship must be reverent. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse uh, 28 uh, mentioned that. Uh, we must understand who is being worshipped. You know God is holy. He's just. He's perfect. He's powerful. He's loving. But then on the flip side. We have to recognize what is not to be worshipped. We're sinners, saved by God's grace. So we can't be the focus of worship at all. We come before our holy God on the basis of our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. There's no room for pride in our worship or adoration. We look at Luke chapter 18, that story that Jesus told about the Pharisee who prays and how he's glad he's not like that tax gatherer over there. 
So they can't have pride. This is unacceptable worship. If we feel that we deserve to be in God's presence, I believe that's a sure sign that we've missed the mark if we really believe that we deserve to be in His presence. And so those who wish to worship biblically must worship God as He's revealed in Scripture. Unbiblical views of God must be rejected. They have to be biblical views of God as well. So here are a few verses of unacceptable worship. First is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. He says, Since therefore we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, acceptable worship, with reverence and awe. So if we can offer acceptable worship, the flip side is that is we can also offer unacceptable worship. So we have to be aware of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, let's go back to the beginning and realize that worship was debatable back then as well. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. It was unacceptable. There's a whole study on why that had happened. But just know that there was acceptable worship. There was unacceptable worship. And we have to be careful with that. And then finally, Matthew chapter 15. Let's get some words of Jesus just to be clear. He's speaking to the religious leaders of the day, but he's speaking to all of us. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That is a scary verse. So when we teach various doctrines or traditions, things that are our preferences as doctrines of God, we've missed the mark. And so we should beware of casting judgment upon other groups' style or preference or worship expression. That would be okay if you're the object of worship because then you could say, that wasn't appealing to me whatsoever. But if you're not the object of worship, I just already told you God was. Therefore, how dare we say that that's unacceptable worship to God when He is receiving this worship no matter what the song is coming. If it is honoring God and bringing glory to His name, that is acceptable worship. And so we just have to be aware of that. Just because our preferences are different doesn't mean that that type of worship is meaningless or not acceptable. We have to be aware of that. All right, the uh, second T in in the the truth acrostic is true worship. Uh, Did you know that we can worship in ignorance? Uh, We can do that. We can worship in ignorance. Uh, John chapter 4, Jesus says this, You worship what you do not know. We worship for what we know. Because salvation is from the Jews. And so that's uh, John chapter 4, verse 22. So in this passage, we also have to think, what is God seeking? What is God seeking? So we might say, well, he's seeking the lost. I mean, aren't there plenty of verses that say that Jesus is seeking the lost? He's given us that mandate to seek the lost. What about converts? Is he seeking converts? Is he seeking disciples? You know, go and make disciples. Is he seeking them? Is he seeking missionaries? Because we've got to get the message out to, to every 
people group around the world, even in our neighborhood? Is he seeking laborers? Later in this passage, he says that's what he wants. But what's he really seeking at the beginning of John chapter 4? He's seeking worshipers. And the problem with seeking worshipers is that many people all around the world are worshiping that which only God should receive. So they're worshiping an idol or they're worshiping some other philosophy or some other teaching. And God's glory is being given to another and not to himself. And that's, that's the problem. And so he is seeking worshipers. And so um, uh, i got a plenty of verses. I'll, I'll put it up later. But let's get to the last one, which is the, the, the H in the acrostic truth. It uh, stands for hymns and spiritual songs. you got to put that part in there, right? Because <laughs> it's worship. Um, what are some ingredients that we find in the New Testament regarding worship? And so we, that's probably why we worship the way we do. So let me just share some of the things that I discovered during my research. The first, church, uh, first century on any given Sunday, these were a part of their worship experiences. One is they observed the Lord's Supper. Okay, it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. And so they were there for worship, the Lord's Supper. Communion was a part of what they did together because it was a message. It's going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's why they did it. And so they got to, to, to talk about the gospel, every time they did the Lord's Supper, especially for all these lost people that they brought with them to church, to the house group, right? They got to retell the story, and everybody's, hey, I never heard that story before, you know, and they got to share the gospel. And so that, that's pretty cool. So observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, they offered up uh, prayers, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. What is the outcome? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. He's talking about prayer as something important. Offered up prayers. They sung songs to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 where I get this, uh, uh, this, the, uh, this line. Uh, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, they took up a collection. That was an act of worship. That was something that they did. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save that he may prosper so that the, no collection be made when I come. And so on the first day of the week, every time they got together, they would take up a collection for the saints. And that's a big story about, uh, uh, more to that story about who those people were. They read the scriptures. It says in Colossians 4.16, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul wrote letters and they would pass those around to various churches so that they all would get to hear what the Spirit was saying through the Apostle Paul. And then they proclaimed the Word of God. This is also in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Uh, they gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. And then Paul says this. Paul, well, Luke writes this. Paul began talking to them intending to leave the next day, but he uh, prolonged his message, it says, until midnight. How many of us are still going to be in this room when I don't finish until midnight? <laughs> That's right. He'll be there. All right. I love it. 
but, th- but that's something that was happening. He proclaimed the Word of God. That is a part of a worship expression as we gather together. So this is the conclusion of all this. When we talk about worship as a lifestyle, that includes transformation of the mind and transformation of the body. And it's more than simply keeping the rules. We, you know, sometimes we like rules, sometimes we don't like rules. But if it's just keeping the rules, that's externally focused. We want to do things out from the freedom of our heart because we know it's the right thing. Not because we're going to get punished if we don't keep the rules. So the rabbis had come up with 613 different laws that would help the people, the community. If, if you obey these 613 laws, certainly you wouldn't break God's top 10. Okay? So that was, that was where these came from. And this really came out of, uh, what, this guy named uh, uh, Moses Ben, uh, uh, I can't pronounce his name, M-A-I-M-O-N, Maimon. Maimonides is um, 1138 to 1204. So that was a long time ago. And, uh, and I've seen the list. 613 verses and everything of, of where you find all that. But 613. Then David in Psalm 15 kind of whittles that down to about 11. 11 things that you should do. And then Isaiah, in Isaiah 33, verses 15 and 16, he cuts that list down to about 6. And it's very similar to what David writes in Psalm 15. And then Micah... In chapter 6, he cuts it down to 3. Micah 6.8, we know that one. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then you get to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. He brings it down to 1. If you could do one thing, I think that's what God is saying here. If you could do one thing, this is it. The righteous will live by faith. Walking day by day in faith is the surest way to worship in spirit and in truth. Walking by faith. And so as you have heard this, what when you look at the continuum of worshipers, where are you on that continuum of worship and lifestyle? What changes do you feel that you might need to make in order to be a better worshiper? How must your life be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the modification of your behavior? Maybe you're recognizing that that integrity thing really hasn't been my buddy. It's convicting. So true worship is not confined to what we do in church. True worship is the acknowledgement of God in all His power and His glory in everything that we do. And the highest form of praise and worship is obedience to His Word because He's told us. And so that honors God, brings Him glory and honor when we are obedient to His Word. So to do this, we've got to know God We cannot be ignorant of Him. Worship is to glorify and exalt God and to show our loyalty and admiration to our Heavenly Father.
And so maybe I've said something that has been meaningful to you when it comes to worship. Maybe you've got a challenge. I'll, I'll put this text up on our website so you can look at these verses again. But uh, I just, just wanted you to know that during this emphasis of refocused, this week has been our Bible study lesson was on worship. And so I just wanted to bring in some other areas of worship that, that were not a part of that Sunday school lesson. And so just to help us to grow in who we are as followers of Jesus and how we worship. And so let's, uh, let's pray about it.